How's everybody doing out there? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you for tuning in to the Focus Compounding Podcast. Sitting alongside my co-founder here, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic, other than this is the third time that we've recorded this intro because I keep messing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, this is not the first time we've had to record a few times. No, this is not the first time. Anyways, we hope everyone is having a good day. Uh, thank you for tuning in. If you do want to get access to our investing uh, write-up website, feel free to go to focuscompounding.com. And be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and they'll take $10 off your subscription price um, forever, indefinitely. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good promo code, and it also helps us out because then we know where our viewers are coming from. Yep. So it's been good for us. So today we're going to be talking about comparables and how to use them when valuing a company and how to think about them when valuing a company. And we've got a lot of experience valuing companies, don't we? Yes. We do. And I think, was this some, did somebody write in about this or was this from Twitter or something Uh, Yeah, I've gotten a lot of questions about this and it's something that we do a lot. Um, When I wrote a newsletter, we always used um, five peers. Mm -hmm. That's what we we always compared the company to. And um, we talked about, uh, let's see, HBB last week? That right okay so uh that's part of uh what we did looking at that company and how it might be valued right mm-hmm. that's yeah. correct yeah. i think that we talked about that in the, in the podcast and that was, that was a way i mean i think we did a couple yeah we did it mm-hmm. two different ways but that was just one way do you think yeah. that when people value companies they just sort of they think about it too like too much of a formula in a way i mean they just use one black and white way do you think there is one black and white way to do it or do you usually try to think about it from mul- multiple different angles uh, i try to think of it from different angles sure um, but I can't think of many cases where I did not try to find peers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always tried to do that. In fact, I was talking to someone recently who said that there's no peers for this company. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, you know, pu- no publicly traded peers. And uh, then you try to find the things that are closest to it. And I suggest a lot of things like, um, okay, if there aren't peers in the industry or whatever, can you find peers that have the same sort of characteristics as this business, right? Mm-hmm. Things like that. So, I mean, I'm... Uh, I did a write-up once about BWX Technologies, right? So Babcock and Wilcox, which became BWX Technologies. Well, there's no peer. It's it's a monopoly in, in providing um, nuclear reactors for the, the Navy. But you could think of businesses that, that are similar in some ways, and we use peers that are defense contractors, but also you can look at things that just are cost plus, um, things that are like monopolies, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So when you um, think about comparables, so and you're thinking about the right multiple to put on a business, Mm -hmm. right? I think that's where this question came from, from the person on Twitter. Um, What do you do? Do you go and read about a bunch of other companies in the business and kind of look for companies that may have the same capital structure or same, like, for example, like that to EBITDA and then get that as sort of a reference range or, you know, maybe the same margin profile or how do you think about it like that? Uh, You find a company that has been acquired in the industry. Okay, so you... And you find the merger document. Okay. Yeah. And that's how you always do it? Uh, that's the best way to do it, yeah. yeah. If, if you have that. I mean, sometimes right. there are industries where you don't have that for some reason, but yeah. Do you ever factor in what if they were in more of an overvalued market at the time? Sure. Or yeah. like, for example, maybe, I don't know, if you're thinking about consolidation in the airline industry. What if right. oil prices were at X and then today they're at Y? Sure. You know, completely different yeah. ends of the spectrum. Well, yeah, uh, I think that is an issue. But, um, uh, you know, for uh, HBB as an example... Uh, there was the, um, I guess the Jardin acquisition. So Newell yeah. uh, acquired Jardin, but I think in that the investment banker, whoever had used, um, acquisitions going back almost 10 years yeah. in there. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it was Goldman too. Okay. Was it yeah. Goldman that I, I think so. Yeah. All right. So, um, so that's a variety of different years. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And so it should gives you some different multiples. A lot of times what people do is just what other companies are trading at right now. Yeah. And I don't like that so much mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Which are? Uh, well, <laughs> which? Uh, well, I mean, like what? The, I mean, the general industry could be inflated, I'm guessing, or overvalued. So that may not be a good indication it, of what a private of buyer would pay. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the concern is, um, well, it's also a sort of a logical thing I don't like, which is people are saying, okay, well, I'm smart enough to know better than the market about this company. Yeah. But what I'm going to use as an input for how to decide to do that is how the market is valuing other companies that are like this company. Yeah, a lot of people, they may say, okay, XYZ is trading at 12, the industry is at 15, so this right. is, has to be a 15. So almost slap that 15 multiple on earnings or EBITDA or, right. or EBIT or whatever they use, and that's how they get their price. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As compared to, okay, over the last 10 years, this is the range Someone paid eight times EBITDA for a company like this. Someone paid 16 uh, on average. You know, the median or whatever might be that they paid 10 or something, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you pay, for example, like let's say you were looking at a group of stocks, okay, like um, that got acquired over the past 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And all those stocks maybe have uh, debt to EBITDA that's more than this company that you're comparing it to and thinking about investing in today. So Mm -hmm. let's say there's this 15 and let's say this company is 10 today. Right. Do you think that, do you sort of take that into consideration and say, okay, well, this company's actually better, so maybe it's more than 15, or maybe it is 15, but this company's debt structure is, is probably better, or maybe they have better margins or return capital yeah. or whatever. That, that's what you're looking for, is a case where you can see when you're ordering it, this company that you're looking at with all the other ones, um, it's near the bottom of the pack in terms of price, right, mm-hmm. in terms of the multiple, but you think it's near the top in terms of quality. Yeah. The hard ones, which you get a lot with value investors are, it's clearly the cheapest, but I also think it's probably not really as good as average. Yeah. And then you're getting into, okay, so how much should the difference be and all of that? The ones that are really exciting are when you see something that you think is a perfectly good company or even better than its peers. And yet it's, it's cheaper, right? Sure. Yeah. What do you think is the best way to go? And, and I'm sure this depends on why well, I know it depends on different types of businesses, but mm-hmm. when you generally think about it, do you, use it as like an EBITDA or do you think about on a free cash flow multiple or? Well, to a buyer, I wouldn't use the free cash flow multiple, although in the market, that's probably the one that matters the most. Uh-huh. Um, for the newsletter, we used EBITDA sales, EBITDA gross profit, EBITDA EBITDA. That's and not EBITDA a common EBITDA. one, is it? Can no. you explain why you, you use that? Because I, I, I don't even think I ever really saw it before. Yeah, I think it matters to an inquirer in some cases. Um, so an example that we would give is like, uh, so we, we wrote up... Um, Movado, Fossil, and Swatch, mm-hmm. which are all watch companies, and could acquire one of the others and integrate it into their business. And I think in those cases, gross profit's pretty important because you're putting it with a lot of the um, fixed costs that you have sure. or um, corporate costs and things that you're spreading over the entire business. But the issue of how much you're selling in units and how much you can mark things up for, like how much cachet the brand has and stuff, are things you can't fix the moment you take it over. Now, maybe you invest a lot in it, you can build back up a brand over time, sure, and and that's something that the financials can't capture at all. But gross profit is just a way to move further up the income statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some research showing that like gross profit is uh, more effective than people believe. You yeah, know? you've actually, you read a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> you wrote up a, a, a post on Focus Compounding about okay. um, how like people call EBITDA bullshit earnings and mm-hmm. then how, um, you know, if, EBITDA's bullshit earnings and you should yeah. learn to move up the income statement and I think you were yeah, referring that's a, to getting to gross profit and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, which is which is a good point because a lot of people focus on the bottom line, right? And and they care a lot about 
net income they don't even like EBITDA and we've talked about this a little bit well, I that, like EBITDA yeah. um, as a as a way to find the company in the first place yeah can you explain that because there's a lot of sure. people that don't like it they don't like it no uh, but here's the thing when you first find a company um, what you want to do is screen so that everything that could be good is still preserved in that screen right you don't want to throw away companies that you might really be interested in and the problem say you're screening all over the world for instance they use different accounting sure. in different parts of the world right they um different industries you don't know an industry real well say you're looking at something in the movie business right then you don't know how movie accounting works right or uh, we have a write-up about radio stations are they amortizing um sure. you know, the, the cost of the of things related to the radio stations that they acquired or something if you don't know that ahead of time then the numbers that you have below ebitda so ebit and, yeah, sure. and net income could be really misleading and it could cause you to miss out on a company that is actually a really good business. Mm -hmm. So what we all care about eventually is the free cash flow that you as the owner could keep. Yep. So the free cash flow that's left over after you've paid for the CapEx and stuff after, you know, if it was in a, like a steady state, right? And that compared to like enterprise value basically is what we care about, mm -hmm. right? So if your enterprise value is a billion dollars and there's a hundred million dollars left over at the end of the year that could be paid out to owners or could be buying back stock or, you know, could be used to pay down debt, whatever. That's what we care about, sure. right? And everyone, value investors generally kind of agree that's what we care about. Mm -hmm. How you get there is kind of different. Yeah. yeah, but that number on its own for a single year is not that useful. Mm -hmm. As a screen, it's hard to screen for what I just said, free cash flow to enterprise value. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's easier to screen for EV to EBITDA. And then from there, you look through it. You know, yeah. I'm not saying go out and buy cruise lines and uh, railroads and water companies and stuff because they'll score okay on EV to EBITDA. We talked about... Um, I don't know if we talked, uh, I don't know if it was on the podcast, but we talked a little bit about how retailers, mm -hmm. the ones that are the cheapest, and this was talked about on a write-up that someone did on GameStop uh, for the Focus Combining website, but they mentioned... Shout out to Vettel. Yeah. They mentioned the um, the uh, different multiples that retailers traded at. Yeah. And the one that trades at the lowest is supermarkets, mm -hmm. EVD, but on multiple. Mm -hmm. That is because supermarkets generally have to spend a lot more money um, for, on a larger percentage of their EBITDA ends up getting eaten up by things that have to do with like CapEx on the supermarket stuff. Supermarkets happen to be the most expensive kind of retail space that you can have, how sure. much goes into it and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an example, but it's great to use earnings and stuff if you know that. But most people, many investors, this might be the first supermarket they've really analyzed. And so when they're just screening generally, it's helpful if you're going to look at retailers, if all you know is retailers in general, it's hard to use something more precise than EV to EBITDA. So that's what you start with. Sure. Yeah. Why do you think Joel Greenblatt, and if you've read a lot of his his work, he yeah. used just EV to EBIT. He always uses EV to EBIT. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even when you factor in his earnings yield, that's just using EBIT. Yeah. And it's not using EBITDA. And then his return on the way he calculates return on capital, I don't I don't remember the form. It's, it, what is it? It's uh, yeah, EBIT divided by idea, yeah. tangible capital in the company. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I should say that when we, um, like on the newsletter that I did, when we did um, a. And I don't think we need to be this precise. Let me say right, that. Right, right, right. Like, when we, like when a, we did an, 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 uh, our own analysis of the, the business and stuff, like return on capital and things, we used EBIT. We didn't use EBITDA. Mm -hmm. Although a lot of times we used EBIT plus amortization. Because for a lot of the companies that we had, amortization was not meaningful. So EBIT. Uh, Yes, the exactly. <laughs> um, now, there is, are some companies where amortization would uh, have to end up being a, a cash expense. So an example is like um, TV networks may be amortizing um, sports rights. 
Sure. Right? Yeah. So they have the NFL for five years and they amortize, you know, 1 billion divided by five each year. Um, the, the, that really is a cash expense that they're going to have to put up a billion dollars again in five years. Mm-hmm. But for a, most other businesses, amortization is not nearly the same as depreciation. And for a lot of things, it doesn't matter that much. We talked about Hamilton beach last week. Um, what was the difference? 1% of sales. So it's like they really have a 10% EBIT margin or an 11% EBITDA margin that they're aiming for. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's just a question of when you're looking generally for it. The other thing is it's what's available, right? So when you look in that merger document, how much information do you find about some of the other multiples? Sure, there was, yeah, I mean, a lot. Right. So, I mean, the, the problem that you have is, let's say you don't have EV to EBIT numbers for every business that you see, or if you do, you don't know what they're counting is that there could be other messier numbers in there. Yeah, sure. You want it a little cleaned up so that you can co- know that you can compare them. The less you know about the business, the more I would say it's okay to use EVD. Got it. I think that makes sense. So I'm going a little bit off track with yeah. this one, but I do think it's sort of relevant. But Tobias Carlisle, mm-hmm. he he tweeted out today uh, saying, only investors who do DCFs can properly call themselves value investors in quotes. And he mm-hmm. said, discuss. And I don't really see you do DCFs too much. That's Although correct. We've done it one time when we were analyzing Howard Hughes Corporation. Right. Because of, I agree with that. Um you know, so how do you think about that? You know, because this, this the right. person that asked us was talking about comparables because obviously he's trying to value a company or mm-hmm. think of learn how to value about our value businesses. What do you think is the best way to do it then? Do you think it's doing the way that we talked about where you find out what a private transaction yeah. has taken place at and then sort of think about valuing it accordingly in that yeah. regard? Oh, yeah. For the, for the average person listening to this, I would say never do a DCF. Yeah. Always think about what a private owner yeah. would. My do. joke, at first I was like, what's a DCF? <laughs> I was kidding around. But then I did say, in all seriousness though, um, and this is true, mm-hmm. was one of my first mentors. Um, she's a Dallas lady and mm-hmm. she's a, an investment banker and she's a pretty successful investment banker. Um, her whole career and when her and I would meet up, all we would do is DCFs. Okay, yeah. And it was a lot of, it, to me, it was kind of like, huh? Like it was just mm-hmm. a lot of like guesswork and um, it seemed like a lot of pie in the sky type of stuff. And I said, and then I started regularly meeting up with at Jeff Gannon, Gannon and never did them again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> LOL. But, you know, so I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah. And um, I think sometimes you have to use a DCF that we might have talked about. Um, there was a write-up about Box, um, which basically has to do something similar to a DCF. It's unavoidable for a company like that. It's not making any money now, but it will make a lot in the future. Um, I know the two of us talked about Howard Hughes, um, and I don't see how you can do that without some sort of DCF because the issue is how much they're going to sell of land like 20 years from now. Yeah. Right. And, th- and that becomes really important. And I have done it for resource-related companies. Because the issue you could have there is that they could be using as little as two or three or four percent of their um, of their of their proven reserves each year, right? Sure. And so you, it, what people will get is this absurd number, right? That they're sitting on assets that are worth ten billion dollars, yeah. Right. But it, we know that they're not going to use them up for twenty five years. That's very different than that they have a billion dollars on hand, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in cash. So, yeah, there are places for it when you have to look really far out into the future, I think. But uh, for the average company that we're talking about, um, a lot of times all you have to do is prove that the company that you're looking at is a better bet than other companies generally, right? Because the market is giving you a positive return overall on average. Mm -hmm. So if you find something that's, let's say you could find something, you can't do a DCF, but you're utterly convinced that it's better than average, right? And that it's cheaper than average. That's a good bet, sure. and that's something that you should take. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you could really prove that among food companies, this one has a lower multiple than most of them, 
and you're sure that its future is better than most of them. It's true that if you don't, if you can't do a DCF about it, right, you could be wrong and all food companies could be a bad bet. But if you're really convinced that in two ways, quality and cheapness, this is the best food company around. Sure. Over time, that's going to tend to work. And if you can do that in five different sectors at the same time, you know, your odds are really good there. I don't think you ever have to touch anything like a DCF. And, you know, I don't think that um, you can be a stock market genius is really anything but pure comparison type valuation. Yeah, I mean, if the way he would do it is he would say, okay, this spinoff is happening in this industry. Let mm-hmm. me go read about it. And then let me look at other companies in this industry and see right. where they're trading. And he would sort of put a multiple on it that yeah. way. And then you kind of think, in his case, you know, okay, a year, two, or three after the spin, it'll it'll perfectly converge. And maybe within the first year or something is when I'll get my biggest return and they'll sell it and move on to something else, right? Sure. And that's probably how you, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but mm-hmm. that's probably contributing. Now, that's heavy returns. value investing as opposed to like growth and like and the quality of the company. Sure. Because there's some companies that he would, he said that they just looked completely ugly and gross. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, um, we looked at a company uh, this past week that, uh, Let's. I can we say what the company was? Go for that's it. That's ascendant. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's a case where the company was. I don't. The price is at now maybe easily twice or something. The price that it got down to. Mm-hmm. Certainly ugly company in many ways. This is the former. The United. business is uh, is pretty ugly. Yeah. We would agree, this is, agree with. Yeah. yeah. This is the form the industry certainly. So little backstory. Jeff he assigned me. He said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna. What we'll do is we'll say, okay, we're going to talk about this company." and go read about it for a couple of days or a week. I think this was like three or four days and, mm-hmm. and we don't talk about it until we meet in person. Right. So we don't text about it. We don't email about it. We just right. save all of our opinions. I gave you an index opinions. card with the name on it. That was yeah, it. save all of our opinions for when we sit down. And when I was re- when I was reading it, I was mm-hmm. almost like, what, is he, what does he want me to read about this? <laughs> this is like, is he really interested in... I yeah. guess I was just kind of turned off from the beginning. I'm like, I don't really like this business too Have much. Have we said what industry it's in? It would go for it. It's <laughs> okay. Office supplies. Office supplies. Yeah. So those big customers would be like Staples and WB Mason and things like that. It's actually yeah. a real middleman. Yeah. If you don't like companies like Staples, it's actually the one that's one further up the chain. Yeah. Um. So it, it's it's selling through resellers for for office uh, supplies. It was funny though because I was I was I didn't know I was like what's the lesson he's trying to <laughs> have me learn here or something. I just didn't know if mm-hmm. there was something I was missing where I, I right. like triple checked everything. I'm like, am I missing something? Because mm-hmm. he he brought this idea to me, so he wants to talk about right. it. So is there something I'm missing here? So mm-hmm. and then we met in person and we pretty much had the same opinions about it. Which sure we had the know. same opinions about the company. Yeah, but there's two companies interested in this company. Yeah, I right. mean, it's, well, that's it's a unique situation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so there, there's two companies that would, in some sense, like to. Uh, control this company. So with why asset. it came up on a radar is they're going to do a reverse Morse trust. That's so this one do, company, yeah. Genuine Parts, is going to mm-hmm. is going to spin off and then merge with Ascendant. Right, and it'll and be fifty one forty nine. Yeah, split. yeah, and then in that process, a Sycamore Partners, which owns ten percent of Staples, Sycamore from, owns Staples. They, they also oh, took ten percent yeah. of Ascendant as a hostile yeah, that's move. What I, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Is they own Staples and then they purchased up uh, or they bought up nine point nine percent. Right, because there's a poison at, yeah. at ten. Yeah, of Ascendant. So it's kind of getting. Yeah. And then what did and then um, and then what did Genuine Parts do? Then they offered a contingent value, right? Contingent value, right? Sort of Which could it. theoretically be up to four dollars. Yeah. And Staples also then said 
that we could, I forget the exact language, but it's something like significantly in excess yeah, of our significantly former, in yeah. excess. Yeah, so right. it's kind of if like you let us see your books and all that yeah, sort of it's stuff. Yeah, like a bidding war going that, on. Know, we can't do that and because yeah. of the deal with them. And that was the part that was most interesting to me. And then when I got to that, because I didn't read about the news right. until I was just reading um, about the sentence business, the 10K mm-hmm. first. That's the first place I went. And I was like, I don't understand what the heck he wants to read about <laughs> this company. So then I started Googling, Googling around and I'm like, oh, okay. I see why he why this came up and why he was looking at it yeah. right but so this is an interesting one because this stock went from i don't know the early 1990s to uh, five years ago or something it grew at i think 17 percent a year was its compound return over that time for 20 yeah. to 20 or 25 years this company did 17 percent a year i think um it then went from a 40 some dollar stock price to like maybe six or something yeah and then you have two companies that are interested in it and the stock price is a lot higher but that shows you what I meant about the sentiment, the problem, the, the issue of sentiment is that look what happened to the company's stock price in the market. And then look what two private, uh, t- you know, uh, t- two companies that are private buyers in some sense that want this as a strategic asset. Right. Yeah. And these aren't these aren't financial buyers. These are companies that are in some way in the industry and want what this company has. Mm-hmm. Right. They want to control it in some sure. way, merge it with something else they have or they want to actually buy it outright. So I think, you know, you can use the market's valuation, too. But, you know, as an example, in that case, you have, you know, what is that, 80% or something that the, that the, the uh, stock dropped within a fairly short period of time. And then people uh, were coming in and offering well above what the market price was for it. And so it's certainly you want to use more than just the market price. You want to use what others would be willing to pay for it, right? Yeah. And, and you could even use things like... like uh, um, what Staples itself was acquired for and stuff. Sure. And also part of the discussion that we're having is um, there have been an antitrust uh, issue with Staples. And the part of the business, I think that Staples wants to, that why they're targeting this company is because they're trying to beef up the part of the business that had the antitrust concern. And is the reason I had researched Staples before this and had researched this company. But it was that part, not the stores of Staples that looked interesting, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes it's interesting to look at how other players in the industry that like value a certain asset, you know, and I especially say that about something like um, DreamWorks animation, which I've talked about before and this company did not buy, but should have. And some people would say, well, how could you tell that and stuff looking at the financials, but you could tell that if it went up for auction, basically there were some studios that were willing to pay a lot for it for its library and for things like that. Sure. And that's something you could have gathered information. It's information that I knew. It's not hard. It was, you know, very public information that you could have guessed that. And, you know, that that's part of what you want to do with these peer analysis things is what would someone pay for a, a DreamWorks or a Pixar or an Illumination or whatever and get some ideas about, you know, how those assets are valued. So one, one uh, group of funds and things that does that well is Gabelli. Really? So if you look at them, yeah, they, they, that's kind of, I would say, their... Your mantra or whatever is you know the what a private owner would pay for or what what kind of almost valuing it like you would for m a purposes and things like that sure so look at what they do and what they're interested in you know um i think it's a good way to put it yeah yeah they would own something like we had talked about msg ne- uh, networks i guess yeah not the other part but that sort of thing either side of that the msg or the, the network part. msgn yeah yeah either side is the kind of thing they would be interested in i'm sure mm-hmm. i don't know if they i don't actually specifically know if they own that part but that's the kind of thing they would be very interested in. Yeah, we talked kind of, about that like over a year, a year, yeah. Yeah, a year and a half ago. But it's the kind of thing where one of the things you do is you we looked at it and we could do a DCF or whatever, but you can also say, well, what do regional sports networks go for? Sure. Because there are other ones in the country. And what were they sold for? And what what kind of value has been put on them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
no i think it's a good way to to uh to go about it who does it on our website um Jaden Preston yeah when I've noticed when he when he does his write-ups he usually values it um sort of like a, a, a he does it a couple different ways sometimes with the free cash flow version and mm-hmm. then he'll value it with like a comparable type uh, transaction or something yeah like that's, that. a, that's I think, I think that's it's good when, when thinking about like a range of values of what it could be worth yeah I've said before um that honestly the way more than anything that I think about a stock when I first look at it is let's fast forward five years and then what do I think a private owner would pay for it? Yeah. I like to not think what would a private owner pay for it today because I feel it anchors me too much in the current news and whatever, sure. this quarter and this, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, and that kind of stuff. But think, okay, well, outside of this exact environment, what is this likely to, to be valued? And I, I think it's often better to look in terms of what a private owner would pay for it rather than what the market's paying for it today. For one thing, in five years, the market's likely to value very differently. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And if that value happens a lot quicker too than five years, that mm-hmm. just obviously could beef up your return. Yeah. So, uh, but the most important thing is go to that merger document. So yeah. if people don't know this, well, that was it when when we did that and we looked at Jardin pur- or Noel purchasing mm-hmm. Jardin, yeah. and um, I mean they went through a bunch of different companies, and that's the the reference range that they use. It was a pretty good, I thought, um, apples to apples way to look at it. Sort I'd of. say more than anything, that's the document that I read. So for, for those who don't know, after a company agrees to do a merger or to, or to go uh, private or anything like that, there will eventually be a filing um, that explains the background to the deal, often what was brought to the board and, and things like that. Somebody and once told me, he's like, that's probably, you could probably get more information doing that than reading a 10K or like about a company. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very important. Yeah. And it, more than anything, it's the one that I read more than, like it's one that I read a lot that other people don't. Yeah. Like when they ask what should I be reading that I'm not, that's the document, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely merger docs yeah and, and people don't look at that a lot because for the specific company it's for it's no longer it's basically no longer useful like i don't know the exact history of the jardin deal but that would have been one where if you were a jardin shareholder by that time it's just an arbitrage thing or something by the time yeah, that document sure. yeah it came out but it just helps add context to what it what it is that you're trying to do i think mm-hmm. yeah for sure and so it's good for if you're looking at the industry to read that one um about the the particular company yeah yeah I very would, useful i would agree with that so I hope that answered his question. I know we kind of went a bunch of different um, avenues. A bunch of different avenues. Yeah. But that's good. You know, that's good. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening with us here today. If you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo that he does send out, that I send out, Jeff mm-hmm. writes, I send out on Sunday morning, uh, go to focuscompounding.com and on our homepage, you'll see a spot to enter in your email and that will end up in your email box Sunday some point. Sometimes it's in the morning, sometimes it's at noon, but at some point it will mm-hmm. be in there. We want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you in the next podcast.